This is Real Fiction Radio. I'm Lori Messing McGarry, and today I'm interviewing Rachel Louise Snyder, author of No Visible Bruises. Terrorism is as close as it comes to the psychological, emotional, and physical forces at work when you're living in this kind of situation. You're listening to WERALP 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, and streaming on WERAFM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lori Messing McGarry. You're listening to Real Fiction, a place for novelists, poets, and journalists. We talk to authors about their new book releases, the people and events that inspired the story. Rachel Louise Snyder is the author of the best selling book, Fugitive Denim, and the novel, What We've Lost Is Nothing. Her latest book, No Visible Bruises What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us, was published by Bloomsbury on May 7th. Snyder has traveled the world documenting natural disasters and human conflicts. After 9-11, she reported from Afghanistan, camping outside a prison in Kabul, and from Indonesia after the 2004 tsunami. She lived in Cambodia for six years and became a contributor for the public radio show's Marketplace and All Things Considered. She is now professor of creative writing and journalism at American University in Washington, D.C., and will be speaking about her new book, No Visible Bruises, at Politics and Prose, on Friday, May 17th, 7 p.m., Northwest Washington. Rachel Louise Snyder, welcome to the program. It's so great to be here. Thank you. Before we talk about your book about domestic violence, can you tell us about the transition you had living in Southeast Asia to moving to Washington, D.C.? You know, it was, um, I had been there for six years. I was really ready to leave. I wasn't necessarily wed uh, to coming back to the United States. I was married to a British man at the time. <laughs> and so we really were like, hmm, where do, where do we go next? I applied for jobs in Singapore and um, the UK, other places, but we ended up back back here in in the US in Washington DC and um, you know I'd, I'd had a baby, I gave birth to my daughter in Bangkok, so I, I couldn't really I didn't feel comfortable leaving and covering conflicts. Some people do and that's that's great. I um, I was uncomfortable with it, so I made the transition to teaching and it was like, I mean, academia is as foreign as a Westerner moving to Cambodia. I mean, just sitting in in some of those faculty meetings, I was, I just, in my mind, I was like, what are they talking about? You know, there was a way in which things did not feel urgent the way they had when I was living in Cambodia. And um, I was kind of, you know, I'd been covering all these intense subjects as a journalist for years and now here I was, like, anything I needed, I could get in the moment I needed it, you know. I remember walking through Whole Foods one day, and, I, I you know, I didn't I didn't have that thing of, like, oh, my gosh, there's so many choices. Look at all the cereal, the, the, you know, the ubiquitous cereal aisle. But what I did think was, my God, this place is beautiful, <laughs> you know, like, just, just the aesthetics of a Whole Foods store is beautiful. That... I had forgotten. And so there was this way in which um, nothing felt important, really. Um, nothing felt life-shattering or life-altering. 
And I, I guess I was kind of looking around for a place where I could feel like um, my voice, my voice could make a difference in the way that it had with some of my other stories. Well, that's what's so interesting. You were reporting from some of the darkest corners of the world on some of the most difficult topics. And you return to the U.S. and eventually find yourself in the space of creating a big book on domestic violence. And in fact, the World Health Organization has called domestic violence against women a global epidemic. And at one point, you were back in the U.S., and you had a moment, an epiphany almost, about what the state of, of violence uh, was in the U.S. What, what happened? What was that moment? It's shameful almost for me to say this, but when I was covering stories around the world, you know, um, child brides in Romania or, uh, you know, uh, village girls with fistulas in Niger or, you know, women imprisoned for love crimes in Kabul or women forcibly sterilized by the by the Chinese government, like whatever the story was, domestic violence was always part of that story, so much so that I didn't even ask about it. I didn't even ask. I mean, of course, of course, these these women were abused. And it wasn't until I came back to the States and I was standing on a friend's driveway and his sister drove up and I did that American thing, you know, of like, oh, what do you do? <laughs> and she said, oh, you know, I'm working on a project to try to predict domestic violence homicide before it happens and I was like come again like what like (laughs) what and she said oh yeah yeah we've looked at the highest risk indicators and we've come up with this program to try to address domestic violence homicide before it happens and this seemed I mean on on a superficial level that's just an amazing sentence right like you're trying to predict the worst violence we can we can it triggered every journalistic yeah. instinct you have yes it did because the thing is i had never even thought about social uh, about uh, domestic violence as a social ill that we could address like i really was like oh wait what that's not that's not just someone's bad choice or bad luck what it was mind blowing and i knew this was a book from the first, I don't know, month or two that I was researching it, I just didn't know how I was going to make it a book. Are you comfortable with that term, domestic violence? And I ask you that because I read your book, portions of your book, in public at a cafe, and I did get a couple of side glances when <laughs> yes. The, yes. the person next to me saw the cover. What I love about it is you just put it right out there. We know what the book is about, and you're not afraid to get into it. But it might be a term that stuns people or makes them think something, makes them feel something, or uh, that book is not for me. That doesn't affect yeah, anybody yeah. I know. What, what does mm-hmm. that term mean to you? Let, let me just let me just give you an anecdote. It's so funny that you tell me that you got like sort of side eye because I so I've published three books and this is the only one I have really fought against. I did not want that phrase domestic violence in the title, the subtitle. I fought, like, you know, nothing else in, in my publishing career. And my, and my editors and the whole publishing company will like back me on this because I've said like, you know, I'm going to tell them about the fight. I'm going to go out there and tell the media about the fight. And they're like, go ahead. Because we were, we actually all agreed. And yet I still lost the fight. 
And it was just that scenario that you said. I said, I'm trying to picture somebody like on the subway reading this and like someone's going to come up and be like, oh, honey, are you OK? You know, are you OK? Yeah. Like something I, uh, happened in your life exactly. that I need to help you my, with. My best friend was reading Fear of Flying once. Right. And a flight attendant came up and was like, are you OK? Like, you know, is it so good? It's going to be OK. So I fought against that term because I think that term is so problematic. Right. The. the, the when we domesticate something, we domesticate our pets, right? The word domestic softens it. It's already a kind of private violence. It's already something that is shameful in our society. And I think there's a real movement afoot to to readdress and come up with a better term. I was in a talk, I was doing a Q&A with uh, Eve Ensler a couple of weeks ago, and she said, we should call it home terrorism, and I was oh, like, that's interesting. Yeah, I thought, you know, I don't know if that's the term, but terrorism is as close as it comes to the psychological, emotional and physical forces at work when you're living in this kind of situation. The book may end up in sociology classrooms and, and you know, gender studies and, and whatever. And that that's awesome. But I wanted to write a book that people didn't know they wanted to read. And And what I mean by that is that I, you know, my background is in fiction. I have an MFA in fiction. And I wanted to write a book whereby if if you said, I don't want to read about domestic violence, but you could read the first paragraph of this book and, and be gripped by it, right, not be able to turn away. That's what I wanted to write. So, like, at the sentence level of this book, I feel like I was using every kind of every skill set I have as a fiction writer to to make the story something that you couldn't walk away from. Oh, I agree. When you're reading this book, it, it doesn't feel clinical or academic in any way. It it has a propulsive, poetic nature about it. And we'll have you read a section uh, in a bit. But one of the things that, and you touched upon this, the stories of abuse and the stories of families are coming from every geography, every race, every class. But I'd like to start with something you talk about in the book. It's um, from Billings, Montana. You spent time with the Monson and Mosier families and spent years piecing together a story that shocked the entire state. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience in Montana? Michelle Monson Mosier was uh, 15 years old, 14 years old, sorry, when she met the man who would become the father of her children and her and her husband. And her age matters because this is where we need to start awareness campaigns is for young people, 13, 14 years old. Um, she got pregnant when she was 14, had a, her first child when she was 15. And she, you know, she was not uh, an underprivileged child. You know, she didn't grow up. Uh, I mean, her parents were divorced, but both parents were in her life. They got along, you know. Um, she was educated, but she did not want her children to grow up in what she called a broken home. So she gave birth to her uh, daughter, Christy, and then a year later, another child, Kyle. And she continued to finish. She went to high school. She finished high school on time, amazingly. Um, and Rocky was very controlling. He would not let her work. He would not let her have people over. He didn't even really want her to uh, 
communicate with her family very much. So he took videos of them for their whole lives. And so he they left behind like 15 hours of, of family videos. And you see his family a lot on those videos, but not hers. The only person who could really be around her that he that he tolerated begrudgingly was her sister, Alyssa. And he was not, by most accounts, not super physically abusive. Um, maybe a couple of times he did threaten them all with uh, her grandfather's gun once. But he ended up in November of 2001 killing them. He killed her, and then he killed his daughter, and then he killed his son, and then he killed himself. And it just shook the whole state. Um it shook both families. They knew that he was contr- controlling. They didn't know how bad it was. Everybody had one little piece of the pie. Michelle was 23 years old when she was killed. Her kids were seven and six, so they knew. They knew what they were seeing in the in the seconds before they died. And um, it was just a, sort of miraculous to find families where both sides were willing to talk to me. And I think people want to know when they hear a story like Michelle's, why doesn't a woman leave an abusive environment? And and it goes further. In Michelle's case, she actually dismissed claims against Rocky. And you, you make a point about why that is. Yeah, why women recant. Why, why they recant. Yeah. That question, why do women, why don't women just leave, is to me um, such a, such a gendered kind of wrongheaded question that advocates are learning more and more. I mean, for starters, um, it's not the right question to ask. We don't know what leaving looks like. So let me let me use Michelle as an example. She's 14 when she meets this guy, 15 when she gets pregnant. So, and this is not an uncommon age, not an uncommon story. So she has no job training. She has uh, a high school education and that's it. She says to him at one point, like, why don't I go get a job as a as a housekeeper in the, this nearby motel? I can walk there. I can help bring in a little money. And he freaks out and says, I'm not going to have my wife sleeping with all the, you know, or my girlfriend. They, were, they weren't married yet. Sleeping with all the customers. I mean, he's irrational, but he won't let her. So she's never able. So she has no economic freedom. She's completely dependent on him. He doesn't have to hit her. Right. Then whenever she did something that he didn't like, he would just take the kids. So he would threaten her using the thing she loved the most. And that happens all the time. I heard a story recently of a woman who um, her grandparents, her grandmother was completely isolated. And she came to find out years later that her grandfather said to his wife, her grandmother, all the time, if you leave me, I'll kill our kids and our grandkids. After reading that story, uh, questions started to come into my mind, and then you move right into a different sort of territory, which is answering, attempting to answer the question, can an abusive person change? And honestly, there's hardly a more compelling example than Jimmy in California, who was a pimp, a former abuser who went to prison. Tell us, tell us about Jimmy. How did you meet him, and what was he aiming to teach other men? Yeah, Jimmy Espinoza. He is quite a character. I mean, he is um, 
he's sort of a riveting public speaker, actually. He's really he's full of energy. He's very upfront about his struggles, about the way he abused women. Rape was a weapon in his arsenal. He called himself a domestic terrorist. Called himself a domestic terrorist, yeah. He um, got into drugs, too, so he was dealing with uh, addiction issues. And um, he was working in a program called, uh, or working with a curriculum called Man Alive in a program through community work. So he worked in the jail where he was once a prisoner, which was fascinating. Um, I don't actually put this in the book, but I last time I was there with him, we got locked in an unused part of the jail. <laughs> I was like, come on, Jimmy, can't you bust us out of here? He's like, no, man. <laughs> oh, my. I know. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, we're in this little hallway, like locked between two doors. But he speaks a language that the guys he works with understands. And this is a particular wing of this jail, the San Bruno jail, that is um, all domestic violence. They may be in for other things, but they all have domestic violence in their background. And it's a really incredible program where they deconstruct the moment of violence, they deconstruct their actions, they take responsibility, but they're also taught gender theory and they're taught um, uh, sort of cultural and gender dynamics of our society. And then they're taught, um, you know, how to be intimate. Many of them don't finish the program. It's it's absolutely true. I mean, you, I guess I think, yes, batterers intervention programs are very controversial. Do they work? Do they not work? I, I don't know the answer, but I know that not doing nothing definitely doesn't work. I can think of so many cases when someone reads a news report and the reaction is, oh, he just snapped. But that's not what happens. It's a long pattern of behavior. There's narcissism, there's family history, there's no snap. That's right. And that's the responsibility of media, I think, to report that more accurately. I think that is on us. We need to recognize uh, the cumulative forces behind that moment. Nobody just snaps. And it's also incredibly difficult to, to stay in a new point of view. I'm Jimmy believed everything he was saying. He was a charismatic messenger to men, but he still had a bit of a relapse, and so did Dante. Have you been in touch with Jimmy? Do you know how he's doing now? Well, um, as I say in the book, Jimmy stopped talking to me because I wanted to talk to his ex, and the story I got from her was slightly different than his story, although they both painted him in a terrible picture. So I'm not sure exactly why he was so nervous. He was still controlling the narrative. Right, he was. Even after everything he was teaching. Yeah, he Mm. was. And um, he, so I'm not really in touch with him, although we're friends on Facebook, and he had another relapse. So he's back in rehab, but um, Community Works is still holding his job for him, and he's, you know, he's in an outpatient. So I think He's still leading men. And let me just say that his struggle right now is with drugs and not violence. And that is a kind of progress, right? That is a kind of progress. He is not a violent guy. And I want to ask you about another aspect of this equation. Where does affordable housing come in for everyone, the men and the women? Um, And actually, you, you spend some time in the book talking about Washington, D.C., where you have conducted a lot of research. And Washington is expensive. I think you say it's the fifth most expensive metro market in the country. It's only 
becoming more expensive. What are the resources for um, for women who are facing abuse and for men who are just trying to stay on their feet? Oh, yeah. I mean, it is terrible in Washington, D.C. in terms of affordable housing. And this is, you know, what's what's interesting about Washington is like how incredibly progressive the city's policies are. I mean, we have we have put money into transitional housing and shelters and, um, you know, violence, anti-violence programs and things like that. Um, I would say if 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 my book could be taught right next to Evicted by Matthew Desmond, I would teach those books in in a sort of conversation with one another because affordable housing and the disparity of income is an unbelievable stressor on people who are already in stressful situations. This book changed what I thought I knew about shelters. I thought shelters were a place for women to, and in their families, to go for a cooling off period, to get legal counseling, um, and some psychological counseling. But that is a bit of a limited mindset. What are we missing from the, what are we missing from the experience of being in a shelter or having to enter a shelter? You know, shelters uh, are necess- shelter- shelters are necessary in the most dangerous situations. Absolutely, shelters are necessary. But I, I, can't, I really can't think of any other crime where the impetus for change is on the victim. And you know, shelter means taking a victim out of her community means taking children out of their community. In in the worst cases, it means taking them away from their families, their friends. Can I be in the play at school? No. Can I hold a job? No. You have to live in isolation. And you're housing traumatized people with other traumatized people. So I think our progress should be on how to contain men so that women don't have to be contained or how to contain abusers so that victims don't have to be contained. The other problem with shelter is many of them don't take family pets. Many of them don't uh, serve LGBTQ populations. Many of them don't serve men. I think the country's first all-male shelter opened up in the Southwest just a few years ago. Um, New York is opening a shelter that accepts pets. But these are anomalies. They're not the norm. And I think our focus needs to be uh, less on treating violence after the fact, and more on stopping violence before it takes effect. You have spent nine years researching and writing on this topic to produce no visible bruises. Can you tell us about what you're working on now or what you're working on next? Yeah, I'm taking a little break. (laughs) I I deserved break. I, um, I actually already have a manuscript written that I wrote. I took a year off from reporting on this because it was just... Uh, starting to get really heavy, and I was I went through a period of time where I was crying all the time, and I felt like I was not in control of my emotional life, and I didn't know what was happening. So I just took a solid year off. I took all of my research and put it uh, down in my office at the university, so it wouldn't be in the same home with my little daughter. And I took a year and I wrote a memoir uh, that was a little bit about. Um, vicarious trauma. And, you know, I lost my mother when I was, I lost my real mother when I was eight. And I lost my stepmother while I was writing this book. This book is dedicated to my stepmother. And I found out while she was in hospice about three weeks before she died that her first marriage had been abusive, which I had no idea. 
38 years. She was my stepmother and I never knew. And so I think, um, I think my next book is going to be a memoir that sort of has those, those two women as the bookends. So a good companion piece in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) Well, okay. I have one last question. This is actually a question we asked of all our guests and I'm really intrigued by what you might say. Uh, Can you tell us about a book that you love to recommend that no one has ever heard of, or probably never heard of. <laughs> probably. And, you're, oh and I'll remind everyone that you're a professor of creative writing, so you've probably got something really obscure for us. I know. <laughs> well, you know, I wish I did. I, I, I mean, I read, unfortunately, you don't always have the option of like reading what you want to read when you're a professor, because you've got certain things you've got to teach. And then, of course, when you're researching a book, you have you know, certain things you want to research. But I do have, I actually have two I want to recommend. One of the things that helped me when I was writing this book was that I read almost exclusively poetry. I just, that's all I had the bandwidth for between reading about, you know, one violent report after another or whatever. And there's a young poet in the UK named Kate Tempest, who's also a hip hop artist. And I think she even wrote a novel. Um, her work is just stunning to me. I love her poetry. And there's, I want to, I'll mention one other, even though you didn't ask me for two, I'm going to mention one other. Marianne Leone, I don't know if you've heard of her, but she's an essayist and a nonfiction writer and an actor. She played Christopher's mother on The Sopranos. And she is married to uh, the actor Chris Cooper, who won an Oscar for his role, you know, in this adaptation. This is an intriguing recommendation. Yeah, here. yeah. And um, her, she and Chris had a son named Jesse who had cerebral palsy, and Jesse passed away when he was 17. And she wrote a stunning memoir uh, about the life and death of Jesse. She and Chris are huge uh, disability rights advocates, and. Um, she's just out with a new essay collection called Ma Speaks Up. She's also a very outspoken Italian woman. You know, she's very strong like that. She's awesome. Um, and that is next on my to-be-read pile. So, <laughs> Those are great recommendations. Well, we can't thank you enough for coming to join us at Real Fiction. And I'll remind everyone, the book is No Visible Bruises. The author is Rachel Louise Snyder. The book is published by Bloomsbury. She will be speaking at Politics and Prose on Friday, May 17th at 7 p.m. Can you tell us where we can learn a little bit more about your speaking tour and you? Yes, I'm actually speaking a number of places around uh, D.C. and Baltimore, too. Uh, You can go to my website, rachellouisesnyder.com would be uh, the number one place. I'm not, I, there's new dates being added all the time. So come see me in person. I'm fun and I wear fun hats. Yes, you do. I have I have seen them. <laughs> the book is No Visible Bruises. And thank you to everyone for listening. We're here on Wednesdays at noon on WERA 96.7 FM, streaming on WERA.FM. And you can find us at realfictionradio.com. <laughs>